You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right. We go inside the huddle with Megan Gillis, the co-founder and executive director of City Lyric Opera in New York City, to talk about Uncovered, the company's current world premiere production. And then another listener mailbag. It's not from the Bronx, from Manhattan, an intermission (laughs) at the Mets, Don Carlo, plus in the two-minute drill. So hooligans and hecklers are not just for the stadium anymore. Opera has reached a new low as some jackhole at the Royal Opera House boos the performance of a child. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow Apple podcasts, hit the plus sign, send us the voice memo that you want to get on the air. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take, Oliver Camacho. <laughs> no prompt, just straight into it. Straight into it. Oliver, what's on your mind? Uh, I'm just looking at um, our plans for the next episode since we're taking Thanksgiving off and I'm reading your your forecast, what we're doing. Look at this man thinking ahead. I love this. I am. And I'm thinking, we didn't talk about this. I did not green light that. (laughs) That's a conversation to be had. That's why he's the creative consultant. Weston Williams. (laughs) See, I have no authority, so I don't don't even worry about it. I just show up and talk about whatever is in front of me on the screen. This is what I loved about sports this week. So the Miami Marlins, which are a major league baseball team, have promoted Caroline O'Connor to president of business operations. It makes the Marlins the first U.S. major sports franchise to have women serving simultaneously as president and general manager. Of course, the Marlins hired Kim Ng as general manager in November 2020. That is cool. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Megan Gillis is the co-founder and executive director of City Lyric Opera in New York City. It's a company that creates art, engaging, affordable, and accessible to all people, and a company that works diligently to create a welcoming platform for young opera singers. A graduate of the Manhattan School of Music, Megan has performed throughout the U.S. and collaborates frequently with the Masterson Ensemble, collaboration with baritone Thaddeus Bourne and pianist Sarah Masterson. Megan joins us from New York City. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. She actually actually joins us from backstage, right? You're in the middle of the rehearsal. I mean, we're in the middle of our final dress rehearsal. So I join you from the lobby at the Hero Arts Center. (laughs) Megan, being the -the dyed-in-the-wool Michigan Wolverine fan that I am, it is through gritted teeth that I accept and acknowledge that you not only went to an SEC school, but you went to Georgia. I did. I did. I am a proud Georgia Bulldog. This is not going to go well. (laughs) Uh, Do you still get to vote in Georgia or is that over for you? I unfortunately gave up my Georgia voting and I'm very upset about it. I'm I'm really sad now. Okay. Well, if Walker wins, we'll blame you. Oh, it's my vote. (laughs) If Georgia beats Michigan again, we will also blame Megan. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Hey, we beat Alabama, which is all I care about. So (laughs) that was incredible. So Uncovered, it's at Lyric City 
opera. This process is city incredible. city lyric opera. City lyric opera. Excuse yeah, me, this, city yeah. lyric opera. This has been a, a a long time coming, right? It started with a digital preview in 2020. It did. It did. Uh, Lori first approached uh, us about co-commissioning the piece back in 2019. Lori, Lori then, Lakeman, for those of you yes. who are not on first first name basis with Lori. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lori Lakeman. Uh, she first approached us in 2019 about co-commissioning the piece. Um, and then we were able to do a, a digital premiere of, of one of the scenes in the opera during COVID, during 2020, um, actually here at at Here Art Center as well. It was a much different world then. Uh, we had like plastic, we made bubbles out of like recording booths out of plastic and kind of sanitized them all and had singers in these little pods around uh, recording this music and recording the scene um, before the opera was even finished. And then now we're doing the, the New York premiere of it in two days or on the 16th. So what was your attraction to Lori? Actually, we should rewind it back. The show is called Uncovered. Can you just give us like, we don't want to, no spoilers, but what is this a story about? So, uh, what, The story in and of itself is uh, a young Jewish lesbian woman uh, finally getting the courage to to live her own truth, basically, is, is my, my short elevator nice. pitch for the opera. Nice. And it's composed by Laurie Laitman and the librettist is... The uh, librettist is Leia Lack. So it's actually based on a true story. Um, Leia's own personal story. It's based off of her memoirs, her book Uncovered. Um, and then she wrote the... She It's in her own words. She wrote the libretto for the opera. So is um, Leia's book something that was popular in the lesbian community or in the, you know, the LGBT literary community? Definitely, definitely. So it was kind of one of the first books of its time around uh, Leia, to, no spoilers, it happens in the first like five seconds of the opera, but Leia um, married into the Hasidic community and was married to a man for a number of years. And she ended up leaving that community and writing this, writing this book about it and it was kind of one of the first books of its time when it when it came out about a queer identity about leaving particularly um uh, you know religious fundamentalism leaving that community and and learning to kind of live in in a world without such strict rules and and such a, a strict uh, um society i guess so as the leader of city lyric opera um how did you i mean what was your interest in this story and uh, what was your interest in Laurie Laitman? I mean, I know Laurie Laitman as a song composer, not as an opera composer, and I love her music. So um, it's just interesting to see her go all the way with something theatrical. I don't know how long the show is, like uh, what yeah. what like duration the show is. And I, there's a question in there somewhere. <laughs> there is a question there somewhere. Yeah, um, two parts. So the the opera is about ninety minutes, so it's okay. told in these kind of like little tableaus, these nine scenes. Um, and so I was introduced to Lori and to Lori's music. I'm originally a singer. I'm trained as a singer. Um, and, and, um, uh, before I got into running an opera company and, uh, I, so I'm familiar with Lori's songs as well and the beautiful melodies that she writes. And I was actually introduced to her, um, through one of our board members who is also a retired opera singer that she, um, fell in love with Lori's music so much that she literally cold emailed her out of, out of. The blue and she was like your music feels like home to me your music is mm. is what 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 
my voice feels like when I, I your music is what I sing when I don't feel like singing and um she's like you have to meet this company and have to meet these girls and and so we ended up doing a, a concert of Lori's music and she was there and we got to talking and have kind of developed a relationship over the last oh gosh four or five years now so um I know George is, is champing at the bit to ask you questions about uh, uncovered but I just wanted to circle back to City Lyric Opera and your mission statement to be a welcoming platform for uh, young artists or young opera singers. Um, where do you draw the line between uh, young and, you know, people that need, you know, whatever exposure that maybe are yeah. more seasoned, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, I founded, co-founded the company um, at a time when I was still kind of an, an up and coming singer in that time between after grad school, before a professional first professional contract where you're kind of like swimming in the abyss, you're auditioning for anything that moves and trying to like figure out what you, you want to say as an artist and what you want to do and, and, and how to stand on your own two feet, I guess, in this industry. And um, that still stays very true and has kind of evolved as the company gets older and I get older and we all get older and uh, I think that uh, for this idea of a young artist is constantly evolving in, in the opera community you know that uh, I think a lot of artists nowadays are pushing back at the like you know 30 is that marker that cutoff or yeah. 35 or 40 is that cutoff and so you know we we've been very fortunate to take cast and I work with a number of um, New York City based singers, all of who are are at various, various stages in their career. And so it, it kind of constantly evolves in um, people who, who want to come to an artistic expression through collaboration, through kindness, through working together. I, I truly don't believe in a this hierarchical system that opera gets put in a lot where it's, you know, my way or the highway that I think that what CLO does at its heart is, um, you know, create a, a, a flat platform, I guess, or a, kind of a flat system for everyone to feel that they have a voice and a seat at the table. Egalitarian might be a better. Yeah, egalitarian. Yeah. There we go. That's the word. I'm in tech. I'm very tired. <laughs> going back to the show, Megan, yeah. Uncovered. So what is the production going to look like? The stage director in me wants to know kind of, you know, how is how is this being designed and presented, orchestrated? Yeah, so the Lori's orchestration is actually very small, um, but very lush in the space. So it's piano, clarinet, violin, cello for just the four players. Um, and the the Hero Arts Center is a, a beautiful black box. I love black box theaters. I think that there's something really magical about putting an opera singer, you know, 10 feet away from an audience member and getting to feel what the body can do and the instrument can do you know i think it's really important and so it's a 99 seat house that it will be a, a pretty intimate environment so uh when you walk in um and and i think for the story like uncovered it is such a deeply personal story as it is someone's life story and so to be able to not to, to view that in a very visceral way and be part of that in a very visceral way you know those moments we do have a chorus of 10 and plus all the main um, the main characters that that come throughout the show, and so when everyone's singing at the same time, it's it's quite an experience to uh, uh, in the room. So yes, when you look at the website for the production, one is shocked by the size of this ensemble. It's quite large. It's quite it's quite a number of people on stage. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you and I are both artistic directors of, of companies. I want to know, here you are in production, you're backstage, you're producing Uncovered at City mm-hmm. Lyric Opera. Like, what are your nightmares like right oh, now? God. Like, oh, God. What, what wakes you up at 2 a.m. Oh, in a panic? Oh, it's everything. You know, I we're... I love being in the room and I also find myself, I'm, I'm a very, very, very hands-on producer. Um, meaning that I was here till 10 o'clock at night painting the floor the other day. And (laughs) 15 minutes ago was like on up in a ladder in heels, like fixing a monitor. So there's literally no part of the show that I haven't had hands on. So little it's, it's anything and everything. It's, you know, what if no one comes? What if the monitors break? What if like, you know, one of the curtains falls down, all those kind of things are going through my head all the time yeah. i'm just looking at the as as george was saying uh it is a pretty tremendous sized cast um, for for a black box theater and i don't see your face anywhere on this thing so it really does feel like you are trying to really uplift your your colleagues and yeah, we have um, we have a huge team, you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of really, really talented designers. I, even on the, on the production side, we have a really lush group of people and a, and a huge team and also a huge performer. So I think people see my face enough at the top of show telling them where the exits are. And, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Do you feel any resp- as a, as a leader and like, I've just listening to your talking about um, making city, um, city lyric opera uh, something that feels very collaborative. Um, do you feel a responsibility to um, be racially uh, equitable? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's really important um, across the board and in, in opera, especially. I think it's high, very, very important to make sure that opera is racially equitable um, in our casting, but also uh, both on and off stage. I think it's really important. Something that was I was particularly drawn to with Uncovered is because it is a very traditional, it is a timeless story, but it is an inherently very Jewish story. And I myself am not a Jewish woman. And so making sure that we had people on staff that, you know, were able to speak to that and able to, and also within our cast members, you know, we've had, um, I think out of a cast of 17, uh, we have 13 Jewish cast members. Um, and so all, you know, being able to create an environment where they're like, hey, actually, that's wrong. Or like, that's not how that's supposed to go. And feeling like they are able to raise a hand and have a voice to, to speak to that and to speak to Leia's story. Um, Leia and Lori have also been extremely, extremely generous with their time offering Zoom coachings, offering uh, meetings with people, individual people. They've, they've just been really, really wonderful to work with in the process. I mean, I've this comes up a lot on Opera Box Score about uh, women who are leaders in opera companies and how they make their organizations more um, friendly for everybody, more welcoming for everybody, mm. um, uh, and especially women and maybe, uh, for example, mothers who might have very specific needs. Um, mm. But uh, I don't know if you've addressed that yet, but I'm just trying to figure out with City Lyric Opera, um, how long you've been going and at what point did you start to feel the support of the community? And I see that you're sponsored by Opera America and by the New York Opera Alliance. And I'm just curious to see in New York, are those organizations really, what type of support they offer? Absolutely. Uh, so we're in our seventh season. 
which is amazing and uh we're i'm really proud to say that we're in our seventh season it doesn't feel like it at all but <laughs> here we are um and you know it took a couple of years i think for us to really find our our own footing as a company and figure out what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it mm-hmm. I, you know the minute that you start any kind of organization um but especially in opera there are going to be a million people telling you how to do things and so it's it's took a couple of years for us to find our own voice and for clo to find its own voice I would say um, we are professional company members at Opera America that has been extremely helpful just to see other companies and collaborate with other companies doing the same thing, raising the same money, trying to fight the same problems as how do we get younger bodies and seats? How do we tell stories more um, interest to how do we tell these hundred year old stories in more interesting and, and innovative ways? Um, also being affiliated with the New York Opera Alliance, a, having conversations, especially through COVID, of just how everyone's doing, how everyone is existing, what are people trying? You know, we we ended up producing a um, a Zoom opera, a movie version. We shot actually here at um, here at here. We shot um, a, a movie version of. Kurt Viles, the Three Penny Opera, and then fed it through OBS, through Zoom, and then had live actors interacting with the pre-recorded content over Zoom, and you know, seeing what what we were doing, but also being able to kind of collaborate with other companies is, I think, really really important. Uncovered runs through Saturday, November nineteenth at the Here Arts Center in New York City. More at citylyricopera.org/slash/uncovered. Megan, we're going to get you out of here and back into tech. Thanks for hanging out with us. Of course. Thank you so much. from Lori Leitman and Leia Lax's Uncovered, performed by City Lyric Opera. Hey, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. A little fantasy football update. So Tobias says, we are in a dead heat going into Monday Night Football, and we are projected to lose by a single point. Oh, no. But, get this, Tobias says, if projections were how we lived our lives, then we'd all be drowning in a red wave. (laughs) Topical. Way to make it political, man. Listener mailbag. This voicemail coming from PJ in New York City and his sister Heidi, who... And and can I just say, what a highly produced voicemail that we've gotten here beautiful. from PJ yeah. and Heidi. I, I was like, like, as the editor here, I feel jealous. I feel like they had like their podcasting kit. They like were getting like background <laughs> sound. Like They were uh, an intermission at Verdi's Don Carlo at the Met. Take a listen. Hey, Opera Box Score. This is PJ here on the porch at the Metropolitan Opera. It's in between acts at Don Carlo, and I'm here with my sister, Heidi. We're here together, just us kids, opening night at the Met, having a great time seeing this beautiful production. This is my first time seeing this opera at all by Verdi. But Heidi, you have seen this thing before. Tell us about that. 
This is Heidi. We're lifelong opera fans, and my father, who introduced us to opera when we were children, and I came to see Don Carlo at the Metropolitan Opera. I'd have to check when, it was over 10 years ago, but of all the operas we'd ever seen together over our entire lifetime, we both agreed it was the most profound night we ever had at the Metropolitan Opera. We, we to this day, talk about Don Carlo. And of course, I've never seen it again since, and I didn't do a lot of homework, and so being in the Opera House tonight, I started to remember why. And Opera Box score, it's Spain won, the Netherlands nothing at halftime. I don't think those people in Flanders are going to get any help, right? Poor things. I'd like to add something as well. I have a very deep sneaking suspicion that the Queen might just love Don Carlo. Let's keep that between ourselves, though. It might make the King I mean, real mad. Don't, don't tell anybody about that. That's a secret. <laughs> See you guys later. Love you. I love that radio voice, that family connection, that sports connection. These these two are going to get a uh, I get think a it might be our, our favorite or my favorite voicemail we've ever gotten. I hope that you have that lapel pin and coaster ready to go. So Now, Oliver, <laughs> Matt Cummings wrote in on this very topic. Yeah, well, so Matt and I went to see the... Uh, Chicago, current Chicago production of Don Carlos, which is a David McVicker production. And uh, we're not we're not here to review it, but it is all we grayscale, however. Let me just add. <laughs> as we were leaving the theater, um I knew that Matt wanted to see the show, and the person that we were also with was very excited to see the show. And it's like I just had to ask him, like, why is Don Carlos like why do some people get so passionate about Don Carlos? I think of like Aida is my epic opera that I want to see by Verdi. But I've never been that excited about Don Carlos. And here's what he says. For me, Don Carlos is especially thrilling because you get the best of both worlds between Verdi and Grand Opera. The work is just so massive, so monumental in terms of its ambitions, because Verdi wrote it with the resources of the Paris Opera at his disposal. So you get all of those dynamics that you normally get in Grand Opera, political intrigue, historical import, scale, scope, a cast of thousands, plus the extra special Verdi seasoning that exponents like Meyerbeer often fail comparatively short in dramatic pacing, musical variety, interesting character <laughs> dynamics, and emotions that transcend just plot contrivances. Uh, Matt also says it's a scale I think Verdi only matches in Aida. And for me, Matt Cummings, it never feels sprawling because the plot threads are woven together with so much dexterity and the music is epic, stunning, and motivation, uh, motivically very sophisticated. There are a lot of knock-you-over moments of blood and guts, high-octane capital O opera, such as in Odon Fatale, the Carlo Posa duet, but there are lots of moments of real tenderness as well, uh, as in O Carlo Ascolta. The way he's able to turn on a dime between the two, Elisabetta's Act 5 aria is the prime example that comes to mind for me of switching between intimate and grand. It really heightens the feeling of unease that we're supposed to feel as Don Carlos slowly unravels and the house of cards comes closer and closer to collapse. The fact that each character is musically so distinct and has a relatively clear viewpoint really helps it from feeling contrived or bloated. And when you add on to that, the score is absolutely stunning. So it adds up to just an awe-inspiring evening. And so I couldn't I, agree more. <laughs> I mean, I'll say that uh, I don't get necessarily bored at Don Carlo, which is good. Uh, but I just don't, <laughs> I don't believe in the characters as, as much as mm -hmm. I believe in the characters of Aida. I feel like... Oh, I'm just um, the opposite. I, yeah. I, honestly, like I, I feel like Aida feels... 
Aida feels so Italian opera-y to me in terms of how it constructs the uh, the interpersonal conflicts. Everything, even though it has this grand scale, is so like um, almost petty in how okay. in how they're motivated, and you don't get that nearly as much as, as, okay. as in Dar and Carlo. Well, I I think the Eboli Carlo relationship is totally undercooked. That's uh, true. I, I think that the love that Philip has for Elizabeth is undercooked. So um, I only believe in the relationship between <laughs> Rodrigo and Carla. Actually, that's the only relationship that that feels very um, fully it's a fleshed great out. Relationship, and, and no matter what version you see of it, because there's like whatever ten different versions of it, that's the only relationship <laughs> that I really believe in. Which is great. Which makes it a very gay opera, and I should be uh, you know standing. Uh, for that reason, <laughs> but uh, somehow I still I feel like Aida is his great grand opera. But you know, I'm loving this uh, undercooked metaphor, Oliver. It's like perfect for Thanksgiving. Nobody wants <laughs> no. to eat an undercooked Thanksgiving turkey. Hey, send us your own voice memo or email us your hot take. Operaboxscore at gmail dot com. Again, you're going to get that OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your thoughts. Two minute drill. It's happening. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. During a performance of Alcina at the Royal Opera House, 12-year-old boy soprano Malachi M. Bayo was booed by a heckler multiple times before he stormed out of the performance. That is, the heckler stormed out. The Royal Opera House said that it had been appalled by the behavior and steps had been taken to ensure the audience member in question does not return. I really appreciate the British you in behavior there, Oliver. Yes. English National Opera is fighting to remain in London after Arts Council England threatened to defund the company unless it moves outside the capital. Royal Opera House, Opera North, Welsh, Welsh National Opera, Scottish Opera, and major artists have all voiced support for the beleaguered company. Quote, ENO has trained generations of singers, electricians, plasterers, front of house people, directors. That's from ENO CEO. Stuart Murphy, you can't just uproot them. That's right. Protect the plasterers. Scottish Opera took to social media saying, quote, Arts Council England announced cuts to our opera family last week. There was a lack of transparency and clear strategy in the decision process. Welsh National Opera's general director, Aidan Lang, said, quote, we are struggling to understand what the opera policy is at Arts Council England. With both ourselves and Glyndebourne touring opera being so heavily cut, how is that gap going to be filled? If we don't go to those cities to perform, who does? Ricardo Shai, music director of Teatro Alla Scala, is defending the performance of Boris Godunov for the company's opening night. The Ukrainian council had proposed canceling Boris G in light of the potential propaganda value presenting the opera could have for Russia. Quote, cutting a masterpiece that ends with madness and the death of a czar is penalizing culture, said Shai. The idea is to link Macbeth with Boris, linking them to the abuse of power. The Deutsche Oper am Rhein has announced a new pay-what-you-want program that will allow audience members to choose the price for their seats, as long as they pay more than 10 euros. The company cited, quote, a sharp rise in energy prices and high inflation as the impetus for the initiative. It's award season! <laughs> Opera News has selected the three artists receiving their 2023 awards. Deputy Editor Henry Stewart hails 
Lisa Davidson as a once-in-a-generation talent. Senior editor Louise Guinter, Guinter says soprano Aaron Morley dazzles audiences in every corner of the color tour repertoire. And editor-in-chief F. Paul Driscoll says George Shirley is an inspiration to all artists. Meanwhile, friend of the show Christine Gerke has been named Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the French gouvernement. gouvernement. Uh, South Korean tenor <laughs> Ji-Hoon Sun won the 17th annual Montserrat Caballé singing competition with its prize of 15,000 euros. Korean soprano Yering Park has won the Grand Prix in the Bel Canto Vincenzo Bellini competition. Camilla Nyland will receive the prestigious Lotte Lehmann Memorial Ring from the Wiener Staatsoper. And soprano Golda Schultz dominates the field with the 96,000 euro Bavarian Culture Prize. We're going to need a longer red carpet for all of these <laughs> awards. San Diego Opera's Opera Hack 3.0 competition has announced three winners who will each get $5,000 towards integrating technology and opera in new and unexpected ways. The winners? Baroque Reality, Accessible Augmented Reality Stagecraft, Metropolis 3.0, and P O. Pura V have the go-ahead to experiment with proposals that include such futuristic wonders as virtual sets, body tracking technology, and immersive digital performances uh, that include audience avatars. Yes, but are they on Nintendo Switch? On the disabled <laughs> list, the Paris Opera has announced that Quinn Kelsey has withdrawn from his upcoming performances in Lucia di Lammermoor and Il Trovatore. Enrico and Lucia will be performed by Mattia Oliveri, and Il Conte di Luna in Trovatore will be played by Etienne Dupuis. Exit stage right, famed Czech conductor Libor Pesek has died. One of the leading conductors of his generation, Pesek made his mark in orchestra halls and opera houses all over the world. He was knighted in 1996 for his work leading the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic and was awarded first grade Czech Medal of Merit the following year. And on this day, November 14th, in 1774, Italian composer Luigi Spontini was born. In 1867, Grace Goldini, nay Grace Golden, born in New Harmony, Indiana, was born. She made her debut at the age of 16 as the page in Rigoletto, and she was buried in her Juliet costume. In 1900, Aaron Copeland was born in Brooklyn. 1908 saw the opening of the new Brooklyn Academy of Music with the performance of Gunos Faust, starring Enrico Caruso and Geraldine Farrar. In 1908, Oskar Strauss's operetta Der Tapfere Soldat gave its first performance. In 1918, uh, Illinoisian American contralto, Illinoisian uh, contralto Jean Madeira was born. One year later, German soprano Lisa Otto was born. In 1926, Austrian soprano Leni Riesenek was born. In 1934, it was the birth of the late Spanish tenor Bernabe Marti, also known as Mr. Montserrat Caballé. In 1943, Leonard Bernstein made his debut conducting the New York Philharmonic. In 1947, American bass baritone Jake Gardner was born, and happy birthday to baritone Ettore Kim, born this day, November 14th in 1965. And that's your two-minute drill. <laughs>
famous performance of Die Frau ohne Schatten from 1966 at the Met, in which Leonie Wiesenick accidentally sings a note a half step Whoops. higher than it's be. Whoopsie daisy. Oh, but, but a thrilling now high D in that performance conducted by Carl Böhm. Uh, an amazing stage animal whose career was so long and she was so beloved at the Met in these dramatic soprano roles, eventually singing uh, character mezzo roles at the end of her career, like uh, Clytemnestra and um, what's the mother in Yenufa called? Uh, Kostelnitsch. Anyway, incredible, incredible singer. Okay, so I miss one week of the show in November and the entire UK arts scene collapses. I mean, really, it's all your fault. We really needed you to tell us what all these companies were, but uh, yeah. I know, I was in rehearsal. Okay, so let's get right to it. Booing. Okay, first off, it's a child. And Mm -hmm. yes, that was racist, right? There was the article in The Guardian, some opinion article tried to say, like, I don't know if it was racist or not. Okay, it's England. People are very racist. It happens. <laughs> here's here's the thing. I'm I'm not a, I'm not against booing in sports. The reason we boo in sports is to create home field advantage. It's part of the game. It's that's part of the lore. That's part of the fun. In opera, we're all on the same team, people. We want mm. this thing to be great. We want everybody to succeed. And so when this jackhole does this, it cannot stand. The Royal Opera House was completely within their rights to find this person, whose gender I don't think we know, to find this person, and yes, to ban them for life, because that what should that's what should happen to you. When you this is essentially both racism and child abuse. Yeah, th- this is pretty bad. Uh... It really is kind of the boo heard around the world. I mean, I've I've seen this pop up in places outside of the opera world. Like this is like if anyone knows anything that happened in opera over the past six weeks who doesn't know anything else about opera, this is the thing they know about. Um, it was in the New York Post. So. Yeah, it was in the New York Post of all places. Uh, and, and it really, I mean, I mean, partially it does reflect, I feel like people looking out uh, feel like it reflects badly because like, oh, of course, you know, the, these opera audiences are booing this, um, this small child, you know. Um, and, you know, in fairness, it was only one person, but it only takes one person. Uh, and I, I will say, George, I, I am not... completely anti-booing at the opera. I think Mm -hmm. that if people get fired up, I think that means they are engaged in some way with the art that they're being presented, even if they don't like it. But for a kid of any, like, I don't care if it's the worst performance you've ever seen from a child, you need to be supporting them because they are a child. They're literally out there. I used to be a teaching artist and if if a if a kid's like even a really talented kid gets like a whiff of someone thinking that they're not the greatest you know performance that they uh, that they've ever seen, they can shut down for years. Most adults would shut down for years. If they were <laughs> True. On stage, right. Some of them know what they're. Some of them know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there was a lot of uh, back and forth in England about this, and clearly, you know the company wanted to cast a boy in this role with this single aria. And right. so if you have a grievance, it's with the company. It's not with, exactly. it's not with exactly. the, the boy who's singing, doing his best and whatever was 12 years old and like is not prepared soprano, you know, psycho- yeah. psychologically to handle that, you know, with grace and to continue singing, bless his heart. 
yeah. but yeah it, it raises debate about you know should booing be allowed it's like no that's not the debate that's not the debate yeah. the debate is that this guy was a a jackhole and should be banned. <laughs> that's our word of the day yeah, he should be banned for life how dare he man yeah. i would i mean i'm not a violent person but i would I would bring out my cannibal bass on this guy. So, Okay. So then Arts Council England, more like Arts Cancel England. <laughs> You've been sitting on that one all show, yeah, huh, George? Here, here, yeah. here, here, here's, the, here's the thing. Moving English National Opera to Manchester doesn't actually solve the inequities of access to culture in England. Yeah. Right? So it, it robs the capital city of having two or, you know, say three big opera houses and to have that competition and to have that sense of camaraderie and that sense of wealth, right? The, the solution is not to move ENO to Manchester. It's to like f use that money to fund another opera house in the North, right? In yeah. Liverpool yeah. or Manchester or Leeds or something like that, where, uh, there can be an audience for that. You know, fine, move move the BBC to Manchester, right? This is the hot thing to do in English culture right now is to sort of move everything out of England. And instead, we, we need to be just planting more seeds. Yeah, and I, I think it's a really good point about the uprooting of everyone who's like worked there, who's made Absolutely. lives in London. You know, London is not a cheap place to live. Nope. Uh, like once you put in those roots, they're, they're hard to get out because, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're moving your whole family uh, and, and it's such an important part of the cultural landscape landscape there. Um, it, it really is disappointing. We've talked about it at length on the previous show, but um, I am glad to see uh, this kind of unity of, of opera companies in uh, the UK kind of coming together and in one voice saying, this is not a good idea. This is a terrible idea. And I think if there's one one good thing about, you know, sort of the uh, downfall of opera as like a competitive commercial industry, mm -hmm. it's that you can see this kind of cooperation. Like you see these people being yes. like, we are not competing against each other. We don't need one city per opera house. We want to come together and make something better between all of us in a big network. And, um, and this you're is the, that. Yeah. yeah and, and now it's trying to like re-regionalize it again, essentially. And it's very disappointing. And I hope they can, you know, pull pull off their little rebellion here. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Ricardo Shai, so this decision to support the production, the uh, Mazorski, Boris Goodenough, I, I agree with this 100%. I don't see how banning Russian works from the 19th century like helps make a statement against <laughs> yeah. Russia or support Ukraine or whatever it is. Like again, this is a path that has been treaded since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um I I mean I I tend to agree with you. I think that uh you know these opera companies, I mean I don't know how I know Italy notoriously works very very uh late to fill their seasons and to cast things, but at any rate these things are planned years in advance. And casts are secured, you know, far in advance, generally. And um, I understand that it's triggering to hear Russian music for some people. Uh, but Mazorsky had nothing to do with what's going on in Ukraine right now. And I'll also say, like, there is no better 
opera to put on when you're talking about a petty tyrant in Russia, specifically then Boris Gudinov. I remember I saw a production of it where like they literally like they they like literally name dropped Putin in the production as a despot like <laughs> this is from like 10 years ago too. This is an old production. I forget where it was from. Uh, they also were, uh, you know, uh, uh, going after George W. Bush to give you a sense of the time period. Um, but it was it, 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 it's such an effective opera for taking down. Um, these kinds of of rulers, and yes. I, and I, I do think that there is some consideration that you know that's not going to be for everybody right now. Uh, I but I do think that from an artistic standpoint, this is the opera to do as an act of protest. But this is where you can't be like you can't be like timid with it. You can't just do like a a standard you know period act accurate performance. I think there's an artistic responsibility to make that explicit, to put that out there, to con- counteract that Russian propaganda with your own press statements about why this opera is specifically anti the kind of person um, who is currently responsible for the war right now. You know, and um, yeah. I-, I think that's something to consider. But I do think they should put it on, put it on. Lots of awards out there, including San Diego Opera's Opera Hack 3.0. So I don't <laughs> yeah, think... I feel like that's right up your alley, that that whole... I love it. Yeah. No, well, you, George. You, like... you, no, no, no. I, I Accessible augmented reality stagecraft, like, I don't know what that is. Is that okay. like This opera? is the problem, That's like Oliver. opera porn, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, George it's, is too old to understand uh, what's going on. You got to yeah. leave it to us, us kids. To walk you through it, I love I love this idea of the opera hack. This is their they've done that for a few years now. Um, I think that some of the ideas are genuinely like maybe a little bit too silly to ever really be functional, but that's kind of the you know the fun of it. Um, but there's some really interesting ideas in there. Like you know, obviously one of the things we learned during the pandemic is that it's important to have robust virtual opera experiences, and if there are ways to augment that uh, either literally with augmented reality or by like putting yourself more in the mindset of someone who's actually experiencing it rather than just seeing a video. I think that's well worth pursuing. Uh, I think the fellow audience member avatars in a virtual opera house is kind of silly. It reminds me of me bowling. Um, No, I think that's great for some of these companies that can't get people to their shows and their spaces are too big. So just just put some. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I thought was really cool, though, um, and one the one thing in I forget which one it was. it was I, I don't remember which one it was, but one of one of the proposals wanted to basically allow viewers to take on the point of view of the characters in the opera okay. by like sort of switching in their little VR goggles or whatever to like whatever the singers are sing- singing. Uh, and I think that presents so many really interesting um uh, ways uh, a way of expressing opera I have never seen and have always wanted to see well, uh, I don't as someone like who's it. not really a singer. And I, and old man George hates it, but this is the way of the future, George. And you're just uh, you're just a fossil now. You know, let the kids have it. <laughs> let us wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. It's Thanksgiving related this week as we get you ready for Turkey Day. So, Oliver Camacho, what are you thankful for? Well, besides a week off from the show. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Well, um, (laughs) there's just been some really wonderful things happening in the opera world that um, are related back to the show. So I'll make it about OBS. 
Uh, first of all, there's a fantastic article about Benjamin Bernheim, friend of the show, who um, just gave his Met debut uh, in Rigoletto. And uh, the, the article, the, the thesis of the article is like, basically, why did it take so long for this tenor who is, you know, coveted all over the world? And he says, if you think of it like tennis and the Grand Slams, the Met was sort of the last. I don't necessarily understand how that works, but um, yes, <laughs> the, Met, the Met is like the New York, the New York Open. I mean, the, the U.S. Open, I guess. Oliver's so, looking forward yeah. to actually reading yeah. the article on his week off. <laughs> but I want to say that Katie Lewick and L- Lawrence Brownlee killed it in the Comptory. They killed it. Mm-hmm. They were so good in it. They were so funny. They sang so well, but it was really, really like well-directed and well-performed, and the timing was great and with comedy that's very hard yeah and also kudos to kaylee decker who's not a friend of the show but should be she's a former ryan opera center artist and now she has got her main stage debut and she was on par with uh katie lewick and lawrence brownlee um the don carlos is also running simultaneously and i have my thoughts about the production but uh our sort of um curmudgeonly Chicago Classical Review said that <laughs> Rachel Willis Sorensen and Clementine Morgan are the best things about the performance. And I have to agree that Rachel Willis Sorensen is the reason to go see this Don Carlos. And uh, very recently, uh, Janai uh, Brugger uh, performed uh, Mahler's Second Symphony in Detroit with Janae Bridges, who's not a friend of the show yet, but has been invited uh, so they did the soprano and mezzo solos and uh, that, and it's finally a show where they're in the same thing, and people get to know how to say <laughs> their names. And they posted a really adorable Instagram reel of them dancing in their yeah. in their gowns, and it was just so lovely. So to bring it back to OBS, I just it's nice to see that we have talked to some people who are very important right now in the who are making a lot of waves in the opera world. And uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to talk to them and that they come on the show and that they're so generous with their time. And we often learn about them in a way we can't just through their artistry. So we hope that you enjoy this audience to, to meet these people in this way. Weston Williams, what are you thankful for in opera? Oh, I'm thankful for lots of things. I'm grateful for both of you. I'm oh. grateful for our other co-hosts who are not here. I am grateful for, um, yeah, yeah, turkey. I don't know. <laughs> oh, for your I'm, impending I, marriage? Your, <laughs> oh, your yeah, that too. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Jeez, uh, I the am, man needed uh, reminding about that. Um, I, am, I am very grateful, actually, and this is kind of an intangible thing, um, but uh, it was a feeling I had um, last week between the recording last episode and this one. Um, I was thinking about uh, Don Carlos, which i just seen, Uh, And I was thinking about the next opera I had on the docket, and I was thinking about how uh, I would have to unfortunately miss another opera I really wanted to see Mm -hmm. uh, in the the coming weeks. And then I and then I had like a a moment where I was like, "Oh, this is what it felt like before the pandemic in the opera world." Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, there obviously we're not all. 100% 100% back yet. Um, obviously, we should still be wearing masks in the opera house and all that sort of thing. But for the first time in over two years, I really felt like opera was back on the track it was supposed to be, you know, this time, you know, in March of 2020. Uh, and a- again, this is per- 
completely subjective, completely personal. I don't even really know what prompted that feeling. But it was just so nice to feel that feeling again. And uh, I hope it holds up. Uh, but I was just really grateful for having that moment last week. I am first and foremost grateful for the incredible stuffing that my father-in-law makes which is like the centerpiece mm. of thanksgiving dinner it's made with like sourdough and rye bread mushrooms oh, and pine so nuts it's it's phenomenal in opera i really am just thankful for this art form sometimes i look around me and i think there's this pandemic that we are slowly surviving there is so much content on television and film and i worry that this art form that i love and know so well is going to go away and every time i read an article or i see a production photo or i do an episode of this show i'm just so grateful that we still have something to talk about that people are still making this art form that they're still constructing it and deconstructing it and hopefully it's going to continue to exist that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Wardell. We're grateful for him. Thanks, Norm. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Again, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get the OBS beer coaster in the OBS lapel pin. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Megan Gillis, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you yell rubbish and get banned <laughs> from your local opera house. Please don't. We're off next week for Thanksgiving, and then we're back with an all-new show on Thursday, December 1st. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more love for the Don C. Join us.